Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 2002 period drama Far From Heaven, written and directed by Todd Haynes. Inspired by the 1950s melodramas of Douglas Sirk, it stars Julianne Moore as a rich suburban housewife who discovers that her husband, played by Dennis Quaid, is gay. She seeks comfort in a relationship with a black gardener played by Dennis Haysbert, but the impending scandal could ruin her life. Uh, Thank you so much to listener Asante for sponsoring this episode on Patreon. Uh, This was a really great episode to watch um, because we are both longstanding fans of Todd Haynes. Uh, Morgan has loved this film for a long time. I was watching it for the first time um, and also watched one of the Douglas Sirk films uh, that kind of inspired it, which was just fascinating. It's really interesting to kind of see the way this film recreates techniques that you just like don't ever see in contemporary films at all. Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, this was one of the last Todd Haynes movies I saw a few years ago at a retrospective with the film Society of Lincoln Center. I'd seen all of his other movies before and I loved it. Seeing it on a big screen was really special. I remember the plot but it had been a while since I'd seen it and re-watching it it was even better than I remembered and I remembered it being fantastic. I think I have more context for what it was doing now. I did watch one of the Cirque movies when I saw it the first time but I've seen another of Cirque's films since and just like way more movies from the 40s and 50s. Cirque's movies unfortunately we're going to talk about him more of course but his movies are very inaccessible in America, I think there must be some sort of legal quagmire that they're stuck in. They're very hard to stream. You basically have to buy a DVD or a Blu-ray. So a lot of our listeners probably will not have seen very many of them, if any. But this movie is really fascinating because it is explicitly a pastiche of those films on every technical level. And in some of the interviews I was reading with him, he was talking about the early audience's sort of divergent reactions based on how much it seemed like they were familiar with those Cirque films or not. So uh, I think the film premiered at Venice. It was one of the big European festivals. And the press screening, he said that like the audience was laughing throughout at like the recognition of the tropes that he was sort of invoking or subverting in the movie. And then the main premiere of the film which would be, you know, Hollywood people or just like general attendees was like dead silent the entire time. Because <laughs> it's not a comedy. It, the laughter would be no, it's sort not, of recognition, No, it's not right? a funny movie. So they were just like silent. And it, it won prizes at that festival. Like it was very well received. But you, you do not have to have seen Cirque movies to enjoy this movie. But to fully get what he's doing, you definitely have to have that kind of intellectual. Yeah. It's very different from watching contemporary films that are just set in the 50s because everyone is familiar with 50s imagery and everyone going into this I think like if you're coming into this having be with any awareness of American pop culture you'll be familiar with the sort of tropes of these 1950s suburban stories which are all about sort of heteronormativity and people being trapped and this kind of facade of commercial glamour which is what this film is about and what like a key element of a lot of the films that it's inspired by But the difference is that kind of with most period dramas, the purpose is 
either to create just like a beautiful fairy tale image of history that everyone can enjoy, or to try and take the camera back into history and depict something that contemporary audiences will feel is is accurate and authentic. And a lot of the time you do that with stuff like musical cues, like picking pop music from the 1950s and like particular fashions that modern audiences will recognise, even if that's not actually authentic to how life would be. And what this film is doing instead is telling a story that is very much from the 1950s fictionalised perspective. So it is using all of these kind of camera techniques and lighting and also storytelling tropes that were used by Douglas Sirk and other filmmakers in the 1950s. And it also is completely geared toward the politics and social values that were appropriate then. And the key difference is that this movie is about, it. like one of the main characters is gay and one of the main relationships is an interracial relationship. And those are two things that fundamentally would not have been permitted to be shown on screen. And so even though this film is like, it's pretty much still like PG rated, you know, PG-13. <laughs> um, it's an adult film, but like it's not going into the same sort of modern viewpoints that you see in Todd Haynes's film Carol, which is a queer romance between two women. Great movie. It's tackling those topics as if Douglas Sirk was able to tell that story. Yes. And again, in one of these interviews I was reading with him, he was talking about the fact that a lot of the reception of the movie was discussing it in the sort of binary of irony versus sincerity and describing the movie as very sincere, which I don't think is inaccurate. As we were saying, like, it's not funny. It's very serious and takes the characters very seriously. But that that wasn't exactly how he was framing it in his mind. And that he was thinking rather about using film language in a very deliberate and concentrated way to tell the story. So all of these various methods that Cirque used in terms of extremely heightened color, which we talked about also when we did In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai, which I think is sort of influenced by Cirque, but it's certainly not a pastiche in the way this is. Like this just has bright, bright color the whole time. And certain camera angles, the style of the acting, is very reminiscent of the 50s. Yeah, it took me like half an hour to really get into the film. And at first I was like, am I not going to like this? <laughs> because the acting is so stylized and kind of the dialogue does feel like something from the 50s. And not in a sort of full pastiche way, because like we see a lot of media, like even something like WandaVision, which is like aping a style of the past that people can recognise, but to no purpose. And in this film, there is like a really explicit purpose. But like by the kind of halfway point, I was completely on board. Well, right. And all of those strategies and like the score, which you'll have more to say about it as we go on, is also very carefully referencing music from that time. And like every single thing about the movie is interacting with those film strategies that Cirque specifically, but also other filmmakers were using at that time. And the fact that the story is being told through that language, I think comes across as like really profoundly emotional, which it is like the movie's trying to make you feel things, but that that's not really how movies often get made 
anymore. Not to say that there aren't amazing cinematic artists working, because of course there are, but this concentrated effort to like convey the emotion through these film tropes that were pioneered in Hollywood to make us feel a certain way that we have kind of like in our deep hind brains, right? Like he deploys them so well that you get swept up in the movie because we're trained to understand how to read it. Even if you haven't seen very many movies from this era, it's sort of trickled down enough that when he does like a Dutch angle, which is when the camera is sort of like tilted sideways when a character is feeling upset, you, you know that this means something bad is happening, right? And he was saying that basically like they weren't looking at these old movies and kind of poking fun at them at all. Like it was completely with love for those films that they were undertaking this project and like enthusiasm for their project period. And you can totally feel that sense of just like dedication to the thing that they're making coming through the film as you watch it. It's so pristinely crafted in a way that's just like pleasurable to watch, I think. Yeah. So to talk for a moment about the film that I watched in conjunction with this, This film kind of took inspiration from these three Douglas Sirk movies, All That Heaven Allows, Written on the Wind, and Imitation of Life. Imitation of Life is a movie that's about a biracial woman who passes as white. So it's a film that's about race, but it's kind of in a 1950s context. So it's really not, you know, really pushing the envelope of stuff that could be told like 10 years later. And then All That Heaven Allows is the film that I watched and has a very similar plot in many ways to Far From Heaven. It's about a middle-aged widow who's a wealthy suburban woman who's in this very classy but constricted community. And she falls in love with a more working class, but not like really working class. He owns a small business. This character played by Rock Hudson, who is your archetypal hunk who did dozens of romances during this period. And if you've ever seen kind of a made-for-TV Christmas movie where someone falls in love with a guy who has a Christmas tree nursery and then discovers the power of like living in the countryside and not having a restricted existence, this is like the archetypal version of that from 1955. Um, But it isn't a rom-com. It's like a straightforward drama. And watching this movie, first of all, the actress Jane Wyman, who plays the protagonist, is incredible. And you really see the similarities a lot because Todd Haynes is kind of borrowing a lot of the leafy imagery from this movie which is all these kind of beautiful colorful fake exterior shots of like autumnal leaves and that sort of thing and also the main romance because as we said kind of in the plot summary at the beginning Julianne's character Kathy falls in love with her gardener the key difference being in this film the gardener is a black man so there's a much more kind of contentious divide between their social statuses and their social circles and there are potentially very serious repercussions for them having a relationship in the public eye. I have seen All That Heaven Allows, but not in a long time. So it's useful that you rewatched that one so that we can kind of combine our (laughs) expertise. I did watch Imitation of Life earlier this year, which was a remake of a 30s movie starring Claudette Colbert. The 30s version is very, very dated, although it's interesting. And then the Cirque one... So the setup for that is Lana Turner is a white woman who wants to be an actress. She encounters this black woman who winds up being her maid and she becomes quite successful as an actress. And then the maid has the daughter who's the biracial woman who's desperate to pass. And 
her mother's like pain at this is obviously acute because that means that she's rejecting her mother, obviously. But you also get the dynamics between the Lana Turner character and I think her name's Juanita Moore, the maid. And they sort of initially were both in a situation where they didn't have very much money. And then this actress sort of ascends in the world, right? Because she becomes sort of famous and rich. And that is not possible for this other woman. And so the tensions between them, and like she considers this maid to be like her best friend, but obviously it's not an equal relationship at all. Um, and she also has a daughter. And so the two daughters kind of interacting is fraud. It's an incredible, incredible film. I think like total masterpiece. And it like drove him out of Hollywood because it like flopped and was scandalous and et cetera, et cetera. So the drawing on those two movies, there was also a Max Ophuls movie from the late forties called The Reckless Moment, which I have not seen, which is another influence on Far From Heaven. But in terms of these two Cirque movies, the influences are interesting because he's clearly drawing more heavily in terms of plot and like visual references from All That Heaven Allows. Fall foliage and like Dennis Haysbert wears this jacket that looks very similar to one that Rock Hudson wears in that movie. But then a lot of the interactions between white and black characters in the movie seem really influenced by Imitation of Life, even if it's not in quite as direct a way. But I think, I just think he synthesizes both those films in a really, really smart way. And when the movie starts, all the characters feel kind of like familiar versions of characters like this that we would see in a 1950s movie. So like Julianne Moore is like the like charming, pleasant housewife. And Dennis Quaid is just like the stock man. Yeah, I mean, he he works at this business called Magnatech, which is like a sort of TV tech company. And they're always just talking about like, oh, I've got to go and get my portfolio done by deadline. So it's like the classic sort of pre-Mad Men office job that just materializes in the 50s. And they're very well to do. And then they have two children who act very 50s. Uh, Julianne Moore has a catty yet charming best friend played wonderfully by the delightful Patricia Clarkson. And she also has a maid played by Viola Davis. Yes, this is the like pre-doubt uh, era of Viola Davis because she has basically nothing to do in this movie. Um, I mean, she's very good in her She's very good, but like, role, it's not but... like, it's not like an impressive role. <laughs> no, she was in a ton of stuff around this time where she was playing these tiny parts, which is surreal in retrospect. But um. But yeah, what I was going to say was like even Dennis Haysbert, who plays the gardener, he initially seems like kind of a familiar character if you've watched sort of like race films in quotes from this period, which is like a kind of noble and good black man who's kind of like non-threatening, all of which are words you could still kind of use to describe him throughout the movie. But as the film goes on, all three of the main characters remain kind of within their familiar boxes, but also become more complicated yeah. and real seeming, right? A few months ago, we did an episode on the 1965 film A Patch of Blue, which is a Sydney Poitier film. And that's kind of in a similar archetype where there's this wonderful 
charming, very well-educated black man whose narrative role is both to elevate the emotional arc of the white female lead and also to be sort of like a good example that defies negative stereotypes on screen, um, which is kind of a trope that's been very heavily criticised. And for the first section of this film for Dennis Haysbert's character Raymond Deegan, I was kind of like, "Mm, this kind of just seems like it's just echoing those same dated tropes, which is often the problem with historical pastiche films like this, where they just kind of don't critique it. But like Morgan says, kind of as the story progresses, you move on from this period where I was just sort of like, it's actually kind of implausible that he'd be speaking to her because I was just stressed out. I was like, you know, he's going to get penalised for speaking in such a friendly manner to this white woman. But then like things do get much more serious in the second half and it kind of ramps up and you're like, oh, actually you can kind of make sense of this in terms of him being the equivalent of this Rock Hudson romantic archetype as well, where he is this like wonderful person, but the circumstances are really fucked up. And actually it's not that he's unrealistically optimistic. He is just a person who thinks that the world is better than it is. And the world is actually pretty fucked up as we discover in the later parts of the narrative. Yes. And I think we should give a little bit more background on Todd Haynes, which we have done before on previous Todd Haynes episodes and we'll do again in the future, I have no doubt. And specifically to talk about this film in conjunction with Carol, which we have done an episode on, because they're similar in certain ways and very different in other ways. And this movie is also interesting because it is a collaboration, one of his several collaborations with Julianne Moore, who is one of his like favorite people to work with. And I don't think we've done one of the other movies they've done. No, I've not seen Safe, which is his big other film with Julianne Moore. It's, like, masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. It, like, boggles my mind that he has, like, I don't understand how you have a filmography like this. I think he's made one bad movie. And, like, that's not normal. (laughs) And also his films are very different. Like, he loves to experiment the two things the overinvested audience will probably know him from are Carol, as Morgan said, and also Velvet Goldmine, which was a pivotal film in both me and Morgan's creative teenage experiences. The David Bowie musical pastiche film, incredible movie. If you don't know it, just watch it immediately. It's one of the best movies ever made. But like, you think about something like Velvet Goldmine and then something like Far From Heaven, <laughs> it's very different types of movies and like he does make a lot of queer cinema and he does make a lot of films that think very deeply about women of a certain age and period cinema but they're all pretty different like his Bob Dylan biopic wild well I think we talked a little bit about this in the Carol episode and I am less I think Carol is wonderful in many ways I am definitely less enthused about that movie than it's like mega fans, which, you know, people can listen to that episode to find out why. I'm not a huge fan of Mara, which is largely what that boils down to. But that movie is way more subtle in its deployment of his, like, obsessive research and invocation of references to other movies and, like, cultural texts. And his movies are superficially very different in the sense that they often look very different or even like feel very different like the emotions that you might feel watching this in Velvet Coldmine are probably (laughs) not the same but especially in the first decade of his career I would say he's lately been doing more mainstream stuff 
post the period where he stopped writing his own movies, basically, is when he's gotten out of this habit a little bit. His movies are kind of these collages, in a way, of reference points to other things, while also feeling really fresh and innovative and emotional, which is often not the case when you get, like, really heavy pastiche or someone who's just, like, patting themselves on the back because they're so proud that they know all this stuff. I'm pretty sure he studied semiotics at Brown, which fits in with everything that I just said. But Safe isn't, doesn't fit in with that as much, but his first feature, um, which is very experimental, called Poison, definitely does. And then obviously Velvet Goldmine and this movie and I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan movie, are all just like extracting things from other parts of culture and then mashing them together. Velvet Goldmine, of course, being the apotheosis of that because it's Citizen Kane and Oscar Wilde and David Bowie just like mashed together in this one like stew. And that's part of what I find so appealing about his films is that on the one hand you can watch them and just be emotionally engaged in the story and like this film as we were saying at the top is just like it's a melodrama right like so you you could just watch this and get into the story but because I my brain is always like churning when I'm watching something there's so much to dig into and I just really love that about him and the fact that he doesn't really seem to care about the audience. I don't think he gives a shit at all. In conclusion, finally a delicious meal. Yes. And the way this movie came about is pretty fascinating. It was produced by, well, among other people, Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney. I do not know the story behind that. Yeah, I saw that in the credits and was like, lol. But also James Seamus, who founded Focus Features, and he produced Poison also, the the first experimental film that Todd Haynes did. And I was an intern at Focus Features a million years ago. And I remember him telling us about sort of like the funding of indie movies in the 90s and then into, you know, the 2000s and, and onward. And he used this movie as an example of something that got funded by this guy whose name I have looked up, uh, Paul Allen, I believe is the person he was referring to, who was a co-founder of Microsoft and founded this company, Vulcan Productions, which I believe is still in existence and like does lots of various things. I mean, it's like a rich person's company. I don't know what to tell you. But one of the things he did was just like, decided he just wanted to spend a bunch of money funding like weird movies by directors he liked I guess and one of them was this film I mean if you go to if you go to the wikipedia page for this company there's like loads of very worthy documentaries and then like a handful of films like this and the movie Hard Candy and I was like sure go ahead yeah (laughs) and I remember Seamus who is just an absolute mensch and like one of my heroes really saying to us, like, look, there's a cycle to independent film production and you have to have rich people who will kind of do this for a while and then stop. And it just, it comes and goes. And uh, Universal subsequently fired him and everyone else who worked at Focus. So he kind of knew that that was not going to last forever. But 
someone like Megan Ellison obviously does this now and Anna Perna and like they it kind of you know it's not gonna last forever but while they're there you gotta just be like yes give me 14 million dollars which is how much this movie cost which was twice the amount of money that Velvet Goldmine cost so it was a big step up for him in terms of budget um but still not very much money you know in the grand scheme of things and they just made it look incredible so why don't we talk a little bit about the cinematography and stuff? Yeah, so the cinematographer is Edward Lachman, who is a very prolific cinematographer, and also he's directed some movies. So there's this great interview in IndieWire, which we'll link to in the show notes, where Todd Haynes says, there was a spectrum of about 20 different colours for each scene to describe the mood that I was looking for, and then all the departments would gather around my swatches, and then we had tons of stills from Cirque's films to discuss in regard to framing, colour, angles, clothes, sets. We'd sit around and talk about colours for days, literally. Um, Which comes through a great deal, because as we've said, very vibrant colour in this in terms of like costume and production design, which we'll talk about a bit in a minute. But also one of the really distinctive elements of Cirque's Technicolor films is that there would be very overt kind of unrealistic lighting. So a whole building would be like blasted with blue or green light, or there would be sort of rainbows happening and that sort of thing. So in this film, it's like, you know, when there's moments of Dennis Quaid's character, Frank, succumbing to temptation and going to cruise for men to find sex with. There's this sort of green light symbolizing that sort of theme, things along those lines. Well, and they, in one of the interviews, I can't remember if it was this one or something else I read, the interviewer was asking Haynes if they had done it all using like gels on the physical lights on set or whether they had corrected stuff in post. And he was like, we had no money, so... So it was all on the set, yes. which I think kind of comes through. I mean, of course, the people in post could do amazing stuff now. But again, the feeling of all of it being so carefully sort of handcrafted, you really do feel watching the movie. And almost more than like what you're literally seeing on screen, because again, like visual effects are very advanced, at, you know, in 2021 the intentionality of all of it as opposed to like well we're just going to do something to this later I guess so like let's just shoot something now and then we'll put some color on it later like they've planned everything and it all fits together so perfectly I particularly like all the like purple lighting of buildings at night yeah there's some beautiful nighttime scenes where someone will just be walking along a street and it's like bright blue or bright purple and they've clearly just like put a floodlight on it another part of this interview there was a quote that morgan and i both singled out because we were just like (laughs) um where todd (laughs) says and this was by the way 2002 many movies today are dumbed down in terms of color a whole movie will be honeycomb gold colors if it's set in the past or all icy blue if it's a suspense thriller. That's very true. Like, we're completely used to seeing that now. We're also used to seeing blockbusters that either follow the kind of orange and teal colour grading, which means that everyone's really tanned and has really bright blue eyes, or the, like, really overwhelmingly dark colouring for sort of more adult, serious action movies, which I was thinking of recently because of The Matrix, because obviously the new Matrix movie is much brighter than the original. But also when you watch the original Matrix, it's very well well lit because there's loads of reflections and stuff, so you can see everything, which isn't the case for a lot of less skillfully made 
action thrillers which are just filmed in the dark. But that's a little off topic to what we're talking about here. Uh, (laughs) Basically, the name of the game for Far From Heaven is that nothing is lit like reality to the extent where even though he was shooting more outside than Douglas Sirk ever was, because Sirk was filming in studios, he kind of used artificial lighting for some of the exterior shots to make it look more like Sirk. And it's not like you're watching the film and you think, oh, this looks really fake, but it means that the whole movie has a kind of coherent aesthetic, which is very much what you're seeing in the production design and in the costumes as well, because they're all created not to make a world that looks like the real world, but to make a world that looks like a magazine photo spread from like 1957. You have this perfect household where all the colours are coordinated and all the outfits are perfect and everything looks perfect. And of course, as we all know from every 1950s drama, what seethes beneath is far from perfect, Morgan. Yes. Yes, indeed. Shall we talk a little bit in specifics about the production design and the costumes before we get into the rest of the plot? Yeah, we talk about kind of production design, costumes and music. So this had just a collection of absolute icons were working on this movie. Costume designer Sandy Powell is one of the biggest costume designers in Hollywood. She's collaborated with Todd Haynes on many occasions and Mark Friedberg is a production designer of similar stature who I'm sure we've discussed on the podcast before. And when I was kind of looking up who did the production design, I was really amused because two films that I was thinking about a lot kind of while I was watching this film and shortly after were If Beale Street Could Talk and Joker. You have to explain this to me because... Both of these were also done by Mark Friedberg in terms of production design, but I was thinking of If Beale Street Could Talk because I actually did a video about that right when I started my YouTube channel, Behind the Scenes, because that film uses colour in quite a similar way to this movie. Like, it's a historical drama, it's a romance, you might even describe it as a melodrama, um, beautiful film but it also uses colour in this really intentionally unrealistic way. There's a lot of costume and lighting going into the different moods and themes that are illustrated through colour, basically. Well, Barry Jenkins is incredibly influenced by Wong Kar-wai, yes. who yes. is influenced by Sir. So I, I, I cited Wong Kar-wai. Because like, when I was watching If Beale Street Could Talk, I was like, oh, this is like Wong Kar-wai. And the reason why I thought of Joker is because while Mark Friedberg was hired to make Joker look as authentically similar to the films that Joker is ripping off, i.e. two very specific movies by Martin Scorsese, the entire premise of that film is, of course, bankrupt, as I think we discussed on our Joker episode. Oh, yes, we did. That movie is, of course, <laughs> copying very directly from other films, as Todd Haynes does. But unlike Todd Haynes, it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to say. So the fact that it's copying makes the film worse than if Joker had just been more original because you're just thinking of those better movies the whole time. And it just left such a bad taste in my mouth because I knew that a lot of people were responding to that film positively because they had a sense of nostalgia for these better films like Taxi Driver. And also they were like, wow, it's just like Taxi Driver. People don't make movies like that anymore. And it's like, people do. People make psychological thrillers in the 21st century. And what you've done is remade that, but with no longer with any kind of coherent psychological message or characterization. Um, So I was just thinking of Joker as a very similar concept, which just completely fell apart because it was garbage. (laughs) Yes. And we should also say about the costumes that 
in terms of like the quote you read about the, them talking about color for like days on end, I struggle to think of a film where the costumes are as obviously color coordinated. Yes. The first scene is just like Julianne Moore and all these other wonderful suburban housewives in their gorgeous, like huge big skirts. And they're all in autumn colors standing in front of this beautiful Connecticut autumn landscape. And it's like, oh. Every time she and her friends get together, they're all wearing like either they're all wearing sort of reds and oranges or they're all wearing greens or whatever. Um, there's a scene where she goes to an art gallery and everyone is wearing the same color. Not the exact same color, but like the same version of a color. And it's so aesthetically pleasing. And I'm sure you could do like a deep analysis in terms of like what exactly each color is signifying at whatever time. I was not thinking about it that deeply. But most movies, either they're not thinking about that at all, or they're like, well, I can't have everyone in this scene wearing blue because that's not realistic and it will stick out in a weird way. Whereas this movie... The whole point is that the whole symphony of color in the film is supposed to be in tune with itself, right? So, of course, they're all going to be wearing red because they're supposed to all match. And they're supposed to match the trees. So it's just, like, incredibly, incredibly satisfying to watch. And again, I'm sure you could come up with meetings for all the dresses, but I was not quite at that level. The main meaning I saw was towards the end when... There's um a different like kind of character direction for Julianne Moore. Instead of wearing these big skirts, she's wearing the sort of fitted suit, which was actually very trendy in the sort of late 1950s. And you would see more in films of this type from that period. And it's pretty obvious the reason why she's wearing full skirts for the whole film is because she is in fact visibly pregnant for the whole movie, but only visible if you're like looking at the costumes <laughs> all the time because they are incredibly well disguised and Sandy Powell does a very good job. But it's like, yeah, she's she's pregnant. <laughs> I certainly did not notice. So congratulations to Sandy. (laughs) Um, And why don't you tell us a little bit about the music before we... Yeah, before we go into the main plot, because we've actually barely discussed any of the queer themes in this movie, but we really need to dig into Dennis Quaid's role in order to do that. But um, yeah, so the composer for this is Elmer Bernstein, who uh, passed away shortly after this film was made, but he is a classic Hollywood composer who made something like 250 movies, something in that realm. Very, very prolific. Uh, So some of those include To Kill a Mockingbird, The Magnificent Seven, Ghostbusters, Age of Innocence, and The Great Escape, a very wide range of mainstream hits. And for this movie, Todd Haynes obviously loves music, um, as we would know from his entire career, but uh, he didn't really know Elmer Bernstein before this movie. He had finished the film before Bernstein was brought on and um, for his kind of temporary tracks when he was putting the edit together, Todd Haynes used music from To Kill a Mockingbird. And if you kind of go on Spotify and listen to the music from To Kill a Mockingbird, it is like exactly the same as this movie. So Elmer (laughs) Bernstein was just like, I know what vibes to recreate. And it is what you'd get from a film of this type. Like it is quite a small orchestra It's very emotive, but it's not kind of intensely emotive in the way that you would get from an epic melodrama because it's not really the same as these kind of big films from the 40s and 50s that are telling a really enormous story. It is a small story. And in fact, when I was watching All That Heaven Allows, one of the films that inspired this, like that didn't even have original music. Like they were using classical music that felt appropriate to the story and it worked really well. So um, yeah, I mean, as with every other element, they've really pinpointed the type of music that would be in the background of the story. And I was 
very interested and happy to see that they did not go for the obvious choice of just like flinging in a bunch of kind of 1950s pop music, which is what most mainstream historical dramas do. Because they're like, okay, we've got in the time machine, we're play something that sounds like, you know, Grease Lightning or whatever the fuck, you know. (laughs) Yeah, we've given kind of like a capsule overview of the plot and made some references to things that happen. But I find all three of the characters and the way they kind of interact interesting because, again, you have these types that kind of become more complicated without the movie sort of completely subverting itself or turning into something else halfway through the movie, right? And one of the things I think is really impressive about this film and, like, enjoyable to me as a viewer is that it doesn't ever become, like, a 21st century film, even though it literally is a film made in the 21st century. And the Amy Taubin review of it in Film Comment was making the point that it was made, I mean, she was writing contemporaneously, but, like, at this time... America was in this real sort of cultural revanchist mode in the early Bush years. So you could definitely draw parallels in terms of like the stuff he's talking about and what was going on in the culture at that point. But basically the characters in this movie behave the way that people did in the 1950s. And I think especially in terms of the queer stuff, which we can get into now, a lot of younger people have a kind of like amnesia about what happened in past decades. And this movie just does such a great job of like not engaging with that in any way, because of course that's not, I mean, why, why would Todd Haynes do that? I mean, it feels, it feels unique, right? Because like there are loads of films from throughout the 20th century that either overtly or like more obviously in subtext have queer characters or queer themes in one way or another. Right. But the whole point of this movie is it tackles these two sociopolitical topics that could not be told in like the same way as a romance between two straight white people. And nowadays there are plenty of historical dramas that are about queer people, but the vast majority of them are so kind of modern in terms of their moral and cultural outlook. So you get loads of films that kind of attempt some equivalent of like a coming out story or kind of identity-based storytelling. And I mean, there's some movies like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which obviously are not like doing that kind of story and do a fantastic job of kind of looking at things through a historical lens. But the thing that's so fascinating about this movie is that it's a story about a woman who discovers that her husband is gay. And from his perspective, it's clearly something he's been struggling with his whole life. And he's basically having a midlife crisis. Like, we don't know how much he's cheated on his wife in the past. It may have been continual through their whole marriage. It might have just been that, like, now he's basically snapped and he can't suppress himself anymore. Uh, But we see this scene where it's very subtly done. Like, he goes to the movies after work and he sees these two guys having a conversation. And we know that these guys are hooking up. And he kind of follows them and finds a gay bar. And that's sort of his, in the language of films of this period, like, his descent into vice, basically. And his response to this is obviously very self-hating. Like he can't prevent himself from being the person he is and doing what he wants. Like he can't control his impulses anymore, which is how it's portrayed. And then finally, when his wife finds out out that he's been cheating on her, her response is obviously she's shocked and horrified. Neither of them have the correct language to discuss this. But her initial response, like after she's got over 
being really upset as you would do she's like how can we seek treatment for this and the next part of that story is him going to find a doctor to try and deal with the psychological problem he has which is being gay but obviously the concept of being gay as an identity does not exist to him like there were gay rights magazines happening and stuff in the 50s but not for this like guy who works at magnatech in the connecticut suburbs so he like realizes he's gonna have to seek therapy but then kind of the more therapy he has the more fucked up he is because he's having to confront (laughs) what's wrong with him and of course (laughs) there's like first of all that's kind of what happens a lot of the time when people seek therapy for like deep-seated issues but the purpose of the therapy is not to like unearth those issues and deal with them it's to unearth those issues and eradicate them (laughs) so so of course like he is he goes into this sort of, it's like an addiction cycle where like he thinks he's better and like they're going to have like a happy holiday for Christmas and they have this really great trip to Miami where he like hooks up with this guy who looks like he's practically a teenager. (laughs) And meanwhile, Julianne Moore's character, Kathy, is kind of dealing with this by having an emotional affair with this guy who it really does seem like they would be a much better relationship just in general because it's a meeting of the minds. They have these really great conversations about art. He's this really sensitive thoughtful person and they're kind of learning about each other's lives and you see kind of the way that Julianne Moore is like she's a product of her background so the first time she sees this guy in her garden this like black man she's never seen before her initial reaction is like fear and distress but then she goes out to speak to him and find out who he is and she realizes it's just her gardener and she very quickly kind of course corrects so you get this image of this person who like her initial instinct is racism because that's what's baked into her and her entire surroundings. But she's kind of made a conscious effort to be less racist. Like we know that of her friendship group, she's the one who's more liberal. She supports the NWACP. And she also just on a personal level is a very kind of sympathetic and caring person, which you also see in her reaction to her husband. Because instead of like screaming and throwing stuff at him, she's like, we need to get you help, which is, Partly the sympathy, partly she wants to like protect the life that she has and like keep a brave face in it and keep smiling. Yes. (laughs) She says she supports the NAACP. Then the NAACP comes to her door. And she like ignores them. She's like, I'm busy. (laughs) Can you please speak to my black maid instead? Which is like, oh my God. (laughs) There's also a moment where she, the scene at the art gallery, she runs into Dennis Haysbert and they're having this conversation and she just kind of looks up at him and just goes, I'm not prejudiced. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's <laughs> very funny because it's like, she's basically never had a conversation with a black person that she's not immediately employing. And she's... And indeed, he is her employee. I I burst out laughing so hard, I missed like three lines of dialogue because I was just <laughs> in such a fit of hysterics. But I think that character is really... I mean, I think all three of them are fantastic. This is definitely the best Dennis Quaid has ever been in anything. Hilarious that Dennis Quaid, of all people, is in this movie. Dennis Quaid is a phenomenon. We Honestly, we would have to add an extra half hour to discuss all the thoughts I have on Dennis Quaid. We'll just, like, put that to the side. (laughs) I mean, briefly, he is kind of genius casting for this because the image that everyone would have had of him in 2002 is just, like, macho. He's a red-blooded dad. And then he's in this role, and he is genuinely, like, fantastic in it so it's it's just like a great use of star power right but julianne moore i think this is one of her best roles um i mean i think julianne moore is amazing 
Julianne Moore has done everything. She is really extraordinary in this. And it was written specifically for her because she and Todd Haynes had worked together before. They'd done Safe. And there's a bit in the Amy Taubin review that I'm just going to read because I thought it was so smart. She says, What Moore does so brilliantly is to suggest that the connection between the wooden line readings that were typical of actresses in the 50s and a condition of psychological alienation where the words one speaks never seem like one's own. It's Kathy's inchoate sense of her own otherness that draws her to Raymond and perhaps to her husband as well. Moore lets us understand how Kathy's feelings for Raymond catch her by surprise, what an extraordinary act of courage it is for her to express them, and how unprepared she is for the rejection that, given her circumstances, is inevitable. Which I just, like, I just think that's, I mean, Amy Taubin is a brilliant critic, and I think that's brilliant. But one of the Haynes interviews, too, he talks about how there's, it's kind of all happening on the surface for her, which isn't to say that she's not feeling very deeply, but there's no kind of, like, deep, unconscious stuff going on inside of her because all of that kind of has been just like pushed away and so she it's all just she's just like it's all happening on the surface but as soon as these things start going wrong in her life she like doesn't have the tools to cope but there is something clearly just like good about her and you see both the kind of weaknesses in her character in terms of like she obviously is kind of racist because she's a white suburban housewife in the 50s and naivete about the whole situation but also like she just wants to kind of have everything work out and is genuinely kind and like the performance conveys that in a way that is almost beyond the script like you you like this woman and Ultimately, the movie really is about, like, her lack of social power in a way that I found really affecting. Um, Of the three main characters, like Haynes said this himself, she's the one who's the most powerless, which is kind of a bold statement for the movie to be making, right? I mean, to talk about basically the ending now, I mean, we've not discussed a lot of plot points here, but, you know, in the final act she and her husband do end up separating and he goes off with his boyfriend who we isn't a character like we see that he's had an affair with this new guy that he like met while on vacation who is visibly like 20 years younger than him um and they're just like hanging out in a motel somewhere but she and Raymond Teague have broken up because you know there's a lot of racism in their town clearly they can't be seen together the fact that they were even seen like walking in the street together was this big scandal and there was loads of rumors in their communities and And then eventually there was like a racist attack on his daughter who's like 10 or 12 years old and she ends up being seriously injured. And he's like, I have to leave town. Like, I can't stay here anymore. We obviously can't be together. So he, you know, packs up his business and moves to get a different job in a different city and takes his daughter with her. So he kind of has this economic independence to find a new life, even though these two people could have fallen in love, like in a better world, you know, they they really were kind of simpatico. And then Frank, her husband, can move on because he's ec- he's economically independent and he's a man and he can go off and do whatever he likes. And she's kind of stuck behind with the children. Like, she doesn't have really money. You know, she'd have to abandon her entire community. Like, she is not the person who is victimised in this movie. Like, you have these three people who, in one way or another, are of demographics that are, like, oppressed by society and by kind of conservative expectations 
But while there is kind of solidarity between Kathy and Raymond, and like they wish they could be together, it's not viable. And there's no solidarity between Frank toward his wife or Raymond, because like he fundamentally kind of still thinks of himself as like a straight white guy. Yeah, I mean, that character is interesting. Like the when he tells her he's leaving, he really breaks down and says that he's fallen in love with someone who wants to be with him. And he had like he had no idea what that was like or that that was even possible. And it is very, it's very moving and affecting because clearly this was the case. And, you know, if you read historical stuff about the way that sexuality was conceptualized in America in the 40s and 50s, obviously there were always subcultures in big cities where people were comfortable with themselves, but it really was largely seen as like, a medical problem. So it totally makes sense that he would be this kind of tormented guy. But as you say, he then gets to just go off. And like most dads in the 50s weren't really involved with their kids very much. Yeah, he like shows up sometimes for dinner. And then his kids are like permitted to speak to him over the dinner table. And then he's there for like Christmas Day and vacations. And that's like it. (laughs) Yeah. And I was thinking a lot watching it about Carol and the way that the sort of separations play out in both those movies. The tone and register of the films are very different. As we've said, Carol is way more kind of straightforwardly naturalistic and this is quite heightened. But in that movie, the gay character is the woman, right? And famously, Carol does have a happy ending, which is wonderful. But the stuff that I find the most affecting in that film is the custody battle that Kate Blanchett's character has with Kyle Chandler and like they have money in that movie so it's not it's not a question of like they're gonna separate and then she's gonna be totally financially screwed and also like there were divorce laws meant that men had to pay alimony at this time but she still wants to be with her daughter because like she's this child's mother right and that becomes this huge issue of contention in that movie because Kyle Chandler basically just wants to punish her by taking her daughter away. And obviously the father could also be emotionally invested in this in a, in a hypothetical scenario, but like realistically it wasn't happening as much. And you do get a sense in both movies of again, the just like lack of social power or the ways that women can sort of get screwed over by these situations. And Obviously, Raymond, the Dennis Haysbert character in this, also, like, really suffers. He says that he's never left Hartford, Connecticut, which is where they live. And now he has to basically been run out of town by this whole saga. But, like, his brother, I think he says, lives in Baltimore and he can go set up his business there. Like, he has another community that he can go to. Whereas Julianne Moore's community is Patricia Clarkson. And she's kind of told her about this these feelings that she has for Raymond and Patricia Clarkson completely turns on her. So the end of the movie, she's just kind of isolated in a really sad way. And again, I just think he doesn't try to present this woman as like this perfect paragon of like, she has all the correct political opinions and she's so like enlightened. Like she pretty much is a seems typical of that era but this 
sort of sympathy that he has for her and the humanity with which he writes that character and the performance, I I just found it really, really affecting watching it. Yeah. I mean, we said up top that all three of these main characters are archetypes in one way or another, but particularly with Frank Whitaker, Dennis Quaid's role, he's an archetype, but it's also the reason why it's so interesting is because it, it's very specific, right? Because this is a film by a queer filmmaker where there's this very sympathetic and realistic portrayal of this guy who's just completely fucked up because he's been in the closet for his entire life. And also it's like very kind of toxic masculinity because the only way he has to deal with stuff is drink. And the reason why he's like ruined his wife's life is because he's gay. That is not like a homophobic storyline. You know, it's like the way he has dealt with this scenario He's not dealt with it the worst way he could possibly do, you know. But you could easily see another movie of this type where you see this, like, all-American guy who realises he's gay and breaks up with his wife in, like, a way that isn't so depressing. But kind of the whole point, of course, is that they're all trapped by circumstance and no person is perfect. And it's a very kind of different queer story than we're used to seeing, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think, again, like, this... I just think this movie would be such a great watch for anyone who doesn't know as much about this era of American history. And not that this is the only thing that was going on at this period, of course, like there were always many different stories yeah. happening. I mean, kind of the but... whole point of this is it's talking about like the idealized rich people you saw in movies of this type, you know, which was always yeah. the extreme minority. <laughs> right. But I do think that sense of just like, this is a medical problem was very, very, very widespread. And not that there aren't lots of people who are well aware of that and lots of scholars who've written about it and what have you, but I do think there's a little bit of a, like, rosy... When people talk about the stuff in the past, and as you say, the movies that get made are more often different narratives than this, but this was totally what a lot of people were living through, albeit told in a heightened fashion. And the reason why, you know, there aren't a ton of historical dramas that are dealing with this particular issue is because you have to have someone like Todd Haynes who's willing to call 15 different production companies to raise a measly $14 million (laughs) and then go on this, like, you know, wild goose chase to make this incredible film. Like, it's not something that, like, feels immediately accessible when you describe it, but it's a masterpiece. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, people definitely love this movie. I don't think it's been, like, forgotten or anything but it i definitely think it's less beloved than the like hipper movies that he's made primarily carol and velvet goldmine and um it kind of fits in with the fact that surf's movies they were made money at the time but they were critically not yeah at the time people were just like oh women's pictures and like they're so corny and then like within like the next decade all these very serious filmmakers were like holy shit this guy was like doing so much and even when i was watching you know all that heaven allows it it is such a good social satire like there's so many great roles for sort of flawed unpleasant middle-aged women in this movie and just really smart and amusing and heartfelt ways you know it's very different from the stereotype of what we think a 1950s melodrama is because as always stereotypes are not usually you know accurate (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the 50s, in my opinion, not not a great Hollywood decade, but there was interesting stuff going on. And he was definitely like the apex of that. And the fact that he was German, I think, probably helped a lot. Because oftentimes, if you're an outsider, you can kind of 
perceive things in a more yeah douglas shows up um, after fleeing nazi germany being like why the fuck are all these people so obsessed with connecticut (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah so you haven't watched far from heaven we highly recommend it check out a circ or two also todd haynes has a new documentary coming out soon on apple tv plus i believe on the velvet underground which I will be seeing at the New York Film Festival, which we will be talking about film festival movies in the coming month or so. Yeah, I can only hope that someone be some will be accessible to me as I am watching remotely. So fingers crossed. <laughs> I will have probably more of the big titles than Gavia, but if all else fails, I can just describe things to you, tell you what I thought. So all of that will be coming up soon. Thank you so much again, to Asante for sponsoring this episode. This was a true joy to talk about and to watch again. So next week, we will be watching the 2003 film Intermission, which stars really a murderer's row. Uh, Colin Farrell, Killian Murphy, Kelly McDonald, some other people. This was directed by John Crowley, who also directed the adaptation of Brooklyn, which I'm sure many of our listeners watched a few years ago. And I'm excited to have had this brought to our attention. This is another listener request because I do love an Irish film and I love many of these actors and I have never heard of this. So we are going in cold. Apparently there are interconnected storylines, which people making movies really loved in the early 2000s <laughs> was a movie with some interesting Well, you can lines. tell, right? Because like without having read the summary, you can tell because there's one of those posters where there's like a little square with each individual character's yep. face. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like the Love Actually of posters. Um, I assume this film is far superior to Love Actually. <laughs> yeah, it's described on Wikipedia as a black comedy crime film. So I feel like probably well, not so much. Love Actually in many people's minds was a crime. <laughs> You make a good point. But anyway, yeah, that I think will be will be fun. And if you would like to request a movie for us to watch, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I do have an episode about If Beale Street Could Talk, which we discussed on this podcast. Yes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.